Good morning. How are we doing? Maybe we'll just sit and smile at each other for a minute and just look around and have a big sheepish grin. It's good to be back. If we haven't met each other or if we met for the third or fourth time, which I'm famous for doing, um, let's change that. I like how Trey said that this morning. Let's connect in the lobby. It's good to see all these faces. It's good to be back in Texas, even if it's hot. Even if San Diego is almost always perfect, especially this time of year, y'all, I had the most amazing week being away. That's why I wasn't here last week. If weather is the conversation, San Diego beats Austin all day long. It's just gorgeous. Anybody from San Diego County or anywhere over there, La Jolla, Carlsbad, nobody? Y'all, there's a daily jet that goes from Austin to John Wayne uh, Municipal Airport in Long Beach. I recommend you catch it and go figure out what all that's all about because it's super, super fun. It's good to be back. Some of you don't know this about me. I talk about it sometimes, but many of you don't, may not know this. I actually have a side, a side gig, a side hustle, a side business that I work in. Uh, and I do it to supplement, you know, the demands of four kids at university and two continents and like eight households and 17 cell phones and nine cars or whatever it is that we have at this point. Um, but m in my side business, I train doctors and pharmaceutical representatives or pharmaceutical executives or sometimes regional salespeople, whatever it is, uh, to become better public speakers. And so that takes me interesting places like San Diego, uh, where there are conferences that this, you know, this is what they do. They gather to figure out how to do a better job complicated, you know, delivering complicated data to people who need to have it. So it's a little bit like preaching. It's exactly like preaching. It's a different subject line, but it's, it's very similar. But anyway, uh, COVID destroyed that business for the last three years, and it's coming back slowly. But my favorite time of the year has always been the trip to San Diego, where we go and work for uh, the company that, that owns the, the patents on the antiretroviral for HIV and hep C. So a groundbreaking company, my favorite client of all. Takes me to San Diego for several days to coach uh, different level executives there. And so I added three days to the end of the trip. Just this being a long season and a hot time in, in Austin, I decided I would stay in La Jolla for a little bit, which is a beautiful town. If you've got a beach bike and a credit card, you can have a lot of fun in La Jolla. I was literally texting pictures of beer lists back and forth to the boys back here, like, which is the best? What should we do? That sort of thing. Part of me, don't be alarmed by this. You guys know how much I love Austin. Can't wait to get back as soon as I leave. But part of me only truly comes alive in a beach town in Southern California. Anybody else grew up listening to that music? Anybody else like, yo, we got to get, we got to travel more, friends. People are like, how is California? I'm like, well, what do you think? Like, I don't know. I've never been there. I'm like, oh, my God. Anyway. But honestly, of all the places on earth that I really wanted to be this time last week was right here with you guys listening to Trey and the Good Rabbi. I sat in a coffee shop and just regretted not flying back a day early, to be honest. I wanted to be here. I've listened to both parts of the sermon or of the conversation last Sunday. Both are on Spotify. If you don't know what I'm talking about, we just go back to the middle part of the summer and catch up. It was a very significant conversation. And I have especially listened on loop to the chanted prayers and blessings, the benediction at the end of that sermon, uh, especially the second serv service where Christabel just wove in the most haunting, lilting, most soul-moving melody in D minor on her violin. It was just one of those moments. I think there are a few that we could point to over the last 15 years where we're like, this was a, like, a turn in the road, and to me, that was, it was one of those moments. You know, I'm a musician, and I knew he was going to do this, and I know he's a singer, and I knew he was a jazz musician, but I was not prepared to be so moved by music as those words at the end of that service. So, Catch it. If you can, go back, always doing commercials for what we've said before. It all lives, as awkward as some of it may be, it all lives out there online. So catch that if you want to. Let me see if I can briefly articulate, very briefly, what that priestly blessing from Rabbi Neil was for me. 
As a man, I guess I didn't know how deeply I needed that prayer of healing. That simple, short prayer, do you guys remember it? That he, that he taught you to sort of sing back to him where Moses prays over Miriam and, the, and it's, it's basically Moses begging God, just heal my sister. And he sang that over us in a way that I wonder if other people in the room didn't experience. That moment sim- that happened simultaneous when you realize, oh, I need to be touched and oh, it's right here in the room. The power, something just sat really deeply in me. I guess I didn't know how deeply I needed that. You know, it's been a hard season. It's been a hard, it's, and it's not unique to me, friends. We've all come through a great, difficult season. Some call it the great pause. Some of us, you could call it whatever you want. But it's, I guess I didn't know how much I needed that healing. And I grew up in a particular context in my background where I'm not accustomed to asking God for lots of healing anymore. I'll, I'll, I could tell you more about that. It just hadn't occurred to me how deeply I needed that. So I was so grateful for that. But as a pastor, so that, you know, just as a human being, but as a pastor of a church that's trying to be more and more intentional about graciously engaging our brothers and sisters of different traditions, especially this summer of the Jewish tradition, that benediction from the book of Numbers sung over us just felt like the way it was supposed to be said. Now, some of you, was anybody not here? How many of you are not here? You're like, I'm lost. Get to the real subject matter. Guys, trust me. Go back and catch it. It was so amazing. It was rich and it was generous and it was full of life. Friends, the Jewish people, if we're honest, gave us nearly all of our heroes and almost our entire sacred body of writings, right? With which history, Christian history specifically, has repaid them with disdain and contempt, For some of us, it's a brand new thought to look back generously and say, speak to me from your perspective instead of let me have my Jesus who comes through your text, okay? Western civilization, whether we like it or not, we are an extension of that, and it has treated the Jewish people with indescribable harshness. Indescribable harshness. Go back and reread your world history. I've been doing it. The rabbi drops homework everywhere he goes. He teaches in seminaries around town. He recommended this book a couple weeks ago. I'm not going to lie. It's difficult to get through. But this is a new master telling of history from the perspective of the people who were always somehow looked at like, "Mm, they're just different. They just eat different. And they just live different, right? It's called anti-Judaism. Highly recommended. Go back and reread your history from their perspective. It should make you wince. It's cringeworthy if we read it with their eyes. So to receive in this place, our little pulpit on South Lamar, a, an extravagant blessing from a prominent Jewish leader in our city, it was, re, it was a remarkable act of friendship. I hope you saw it, and I hope we never forget it. You see, being transformed by love is the only way to become the kind of person who, when pushed, can love those who have hated them historically. Love alone can do that kind of work. And it was so obvious to me, whether or not you called them brothers or sisters, that love has transformed that man to become the kind of person that we recognize, someone moved by God to speak to us something that only they could speak. I sat there in my little coffee shop at the end of the street where I was staying, a little place called Rosemont's Cafe in La Jolla, right on Wind and Sea Beach. I I teared up, and the the girl came over and says, is the coffee that bad? I'm like, no, the coffee's great. (laughs) Coffee's great. It's just that the rabbi's amazing. The, 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 the power of his presence and the power of his thoughts, it just left a mark on me. So what a gift we were given last week. What an extraordinary gift. I hope we become the kind of congregation. Here's a little vision for the future. I hope we become the kind of congregation that is known for such goodness and kindness when pushed or questioned or even looked at differently. I hope we become the kind of people who are known for that kind of kindness. I want to be known like the rabbi is known as a man of deep, deep soul and gracious human reflection that can be dropped in any circle and will exhale blessings upon people. 
I don't know what role he'll play for us in the future. I plan to be that little chihuahua at his heels to, to get him to give us all that he can give us. But trust me, it's my goal to learn as much from him as possible. That's going to look like possibly a Friday tour that we might open up if you guys are interested in seeing what they do. I would prefer a Saturday morning Shabbat with the community of which he's invited us to take part. He teaches classes around town. I'm going to be showing up at the back of his classes and asking questions and that sort of thing. Anyway, it's, it's very, very present on my mind at the end of this of all summers that we have so much to learn. We have a lot to learn about our own roots, about our own history, about the people that we were taught to just simply dislike. We didn't understand them, so we're just like, they're strange. You see, we get to stop making cartoons of one another and start doing the hard work of relationship building. That's what you saw. Trey's been on that now for a while with him, and that's what you got to, you were invited into last week. With all people of all faiths now, now, now hang on, because I wonder if you're ready for this. Did you remember he mentioned season one, two, and three? Season one is obviously the Jewish people. Season two, they willingly concede as the followers of Jesus. But what is season three? The great people that call themselves Muslim, the, the Islamic faith, also born of the same patriarchal father Abraham as us. I'm super curious. Are we really ready to enter into open dialogue in all three of those seasons? I am, and I wonder if you are. You see, we're going to end up with a roundtable of lots of conversation partners in dialogue. And my prayer is that we treat them all with the same respect and kindness that the good rabbi treated us last week. I hope we do. And I trust that you see the intention behind the timing of his visit. Not only because I was out of town. It was Trey's idea. It was a brilliant idea. But it came right at the end of a very significant journey that I think that we have been on where we went back through those iconic stories of our faith, the ones that we have always found a little bit unbelievable until we realized no one read them literally until the fourth century. And the Jews never did. And if we take them out of the conversation, then we are left with nothing except, well, I guess they're eyewitness accounts, except they never were to them. And so we've been on that journey. And so right after doing all of that work with those Jewish stories that come to us from their tradition, they're not just Christian stories, right at the end of that sojourn, my heart's question was this. Have we done it well? Have we done it with grace? Or have we just torn things apart to tear them apart? I don't ever want to be that kind of post-evangelical, okay? There's got to be something more redemptive than just tearing things down. My question was, are, are we fooling ourselves? Did we get it right? Well, the rabbi could have come here and rebuked us for arrogance and cultural appropriation. God knows historically we've been guilty of both again and again. We love to speak for other people. We love to appropriate their history and call it part of our own. But that's not what we got last week, friends. He matched our curiosity and grace and our kindness. And I dare say he and I read the text with very similar approach, which I found to be so delightful and somewhat surprising. And I hope it delights you as well. Anyway, I think we're getting somewhere. We're always on the way somewhere, but I think we're getting somewhere, friends. As long as our posture is changing, as long as our heart is opening increasingly, as long as love is setting down new roots in us, as long as we're increasingly curious and not close to others like we used to be, then we're getting somewhere. You can call that discipleship if you want to. I just call it becoming good human beings. But we're moving somewhere, and I think it's important to just take a pause in our journey and say this. Now, I wouldn't say this in the presence of the good rabbi because it just would seem a little self-aggrandizing, but you guys, we've come a long, long way to be able to sit and listen to teaching like that open-heartedly and be amazed at the work of God in a completely different tradition. It feels like a moment worth just stopping and saying, we've come so far. We say things differently now, guys. We see things differently than we ever have. We fear less and we love more, and many of us were taught to Shut the door to other traditions, people like that, and look how far we've come. I see it in my conversations with Trey over the years. I see it in our conversations with some of you as a result of that conversation last week. We've come so far, and sometimes it's just good to say, 
we've traveled a far distance. It's good to be in this place now. And you know, we've gotten here because of our Christian faith, not in spite of it, because of our Christian faith. And I want you to hear this point. You heard me. I said because of our Christian faith. Right Now, you know me to always be the one faithful to point out where our faith has fallen short, where it's led us to indulgence and greed and indifference towards others. But our faith has led us to this point. You see, we're still following the built-in technologies and impulses of our Christian faith. And look where it's brought us to a place of wide openness to all of the things that God is doing. I think that's significant. And it leads us somewhere important today. You see, let me see if I can get this thought across. It didn't work so good at the 930. They mostly just kind of looked at me funny. But if the rabbi, well, they just kind of do that anyway. It's, it's, it's too early. If the, they're not as good looking as you guys. You guys know that. That's why everybody comes at 11, right? Hear me. If the rabbi can sit in this little sacred space, in our little pulpit, in our little place, and not feel the need to convince us that he's more right or that we're misguided or uninformed or misinformed, if he can come into our little space offering his heart and his curiosity and his blessing, his humanity without the slightest bit of condescension, does that mean he's not fully convinced of his tradition, that his tradition is right? Is that what that means? Now hold that thought. Does the fact that we can assemble here and invite someone like him into this place, offer him our pulpit and our open heart and open ears so that he might teach and guide us, does that mean that we aren't fully convinced that we're actually right? Does engaging interfaith dialogue honestly with an open heart vulnerably with our full humanity mean that we move away from our own tradition into something else like some no man's land in between? Is that what that means? Let me just ask the question straight away, friend. Does Jesus still matter? Can you feel the power of that question? If we were to come to a collective no, what would that do to this? I think the whole thing just begins to crumble. Does, ask yourself, does Jesus still matter to us? We demurred all language around Jesus. We took the Eucharist out of the center of our service last week in deference to someone who bears a tradition that does not see Jesus as the completion of it. We did that out of respect. My question for you is this, because I've been hearing it this week. Pastor, does Jesus still matter to you? Does Jesus still matter to us? Friend, I think we're approaching a whole new level of freedom if we can square up to this question. I'm not here to back down from a hard question. I've never been known to do so. One that's taken us literally our entire lives to be able to shape with the lips on our face. We're approaching something fresh and something new. But does it mean that we're moving away from our roots? Or does it mean that we're beginning to move closer to the best parts of our tradition? And I wonder, can you hear the answer implied in the question there? So why Jesus? Does Jesus still matter? I wonder if it would bring your heart some peace this morning if we were able to refocus and answer that question a little bit together. Perhaps it's time we turn back to my favorite material of all, the stories about Jesus, you know, the episodes of season two. Well, today's lectionary reading comes to us from the book of Luke. The lectionary's been in Luke now for weeks. We've been doing other things. And it's one of a dozen stories or dozens of stories about Jesus that I love so much. So turn with me now or look up on the screen. Luke chapter 13. Now, the little text, if you were to, have a physical Bible like the man behind us did last night at the Pride Parade. He was just screaming, trying to get us out of hell. He was carrying a physical Bible. Many of us don't carry that anymore. But if you were to have that and open it to Luke 13, it, the little subtext would say, Jesus heals a crippled woman. And I would just say, Luke, you're not politically correct enough. We don't like that word anymore. So I would just say, Jesus heals a woman with osteoporosis. How do you like that? Okay. Verse 10. Now he, referring to Jesus, this is Luke's memory, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then appeared a woman, there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, 
you are set free from your ailment. When he laid hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant, because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord, the one in charge of the situation here, answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Verse 17, when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. All right, who's got the mic? Open mic. You ready, Phil? Otherwise known as Trey? What's so special here? Inhale that story for a second. What's so special about this little encounter with Jesus and the woman who could not stand up straight? Let's hear from you. Anyone? Trey, there are zero things special about this story, apparently. We got one. (laughs) We got one. We got some heights in the back corner under hats. That's what we got. We got heights under hats. What's so special here? I find, I find it special that it's not only a physical liberation, but also a theological liberation. Uh, you're going to have to say more about that, because that's just like a fish hook with a cheese snack on okay. it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Her physical body was liberated from that oppression, that ailment, yeah. but also he was liberating the crowd from the theological oppression of do's and don'ts, the rules. Oh, good grief. Can you just come finish my sermon? <laughs> good Lord, Dustin, are you serious? You know, note to self, Dana, don't ever ask a really smart crowd questions because they're just going to show you how little you prepared, right? That's a better ending than what I I can offer. You can go on to Phil's. I'll meet you up later. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to piggyback and just say that he elevates relationship over religion. I can can almost make out. Is that you, Christine? Oh, hey. (laughs) Sorry. I can't see that far. Good to see you back there. What else? What's so special here? Anybody else? Ooh, crowd lights. Right? Schmaltzy. What else? Something gripped your heart. I could hear it. I could feel it happen. Yes, way in the way, in the way back. Oh, there we are. Uh, just that he, he sees her. Yeah. I think that's just magical. Yeah. I'm not sure what you could add to that to make that any deeper than that. He saw her. He sees her. Yeah. Someone else? Yes, way up here. Coming up. He heals. Yeah. Just, just sometimes that, he, he, he heals. Yeah. I love it. Anyone else? Right over here. Burton's always got something to say. Dang it, just sing. <laughs> you seem like you wanted something else. Um... And you kind of mentioned this in this, the first service, but struggling with like saying that it's a spirit. Yep. Yeah. And then I struggle with that, but then I want the miracle mm-hmm. and that he heals her. Like, yep. so why do I, which, anyway. I, yeah, I get you. Okay, thanks, Trey. You guys know, okay, so you know how I love to parse these, ver, you know, 
at least the episodes of season two. I love to parse them word for word, verse for verse. I'm a little less strong in, verse, in season one, and I don't know anything about season three. I'm going to have to really study on that. But you guys know how I love to just go back through. So let's just go back through each verse and see if we can add a little bit of background color to these, put a little wallpaper behind these. So let's just go back to the beginning. Verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And in case we needed to be reminded, which after this summer probably it isn't even news anymore, in case we needed to be reminded that Jesus was Jewish, here we have him teaching where Jewish rabbis taught, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's exactly where you find a guy like this. Where else would he be? Verse 11, and just there, just then there appeared a woman with the spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up. And I don't know why Luke would say that this was a spirit that was responsible for her physical limitation. Luke was the physician of the first century church. Why would he attribute this to some sort of a spiritual thing? Is that how we would describe an orthopedic situation today? Very, very doubtful. Any orthopedic surgeons in the room? That's not how we would say it. We wouldn't say she's suffering from a spiritual thing. But I just have to point out, don't forget that in the ancient world, anything unseen was attributed to the spiritual realm. And so if they didn't understand the source of it, they had some theological assumptions they made about why she might be suffering, and they called it a spiritual crisis, okay? So let's move on to verse 12. When Jesus saw her, my favorite moment of all, when he saw her, he called her over and he said, woman, you are set free from your ailment. Now notice, Jesus calls it an ailment here, which of course in the original language was simply a weakness, a physical limitation, wasn't a spirit. He saw, he simply said, you are set free from that thing that is limiting and causing you suffering. Now, I grew up in a part of the world, in the Pentecostal Latin American church, that saw lots of ecstatic healing. Some of them fake, some of them real. Some of them incredibly real. Some of them amazingly fake, right? But here, notice, Jesus doesn't scream and yell at the spirit that was oppressing her. He just speaks directly to her. And he declares her freedom from this limiting situation. To me, the miracle here is that the rabbi looks up in mid-discourse, midstream, right? Probably in the middle of a lecture or some kind of a midrash, and that he notices her in the first place and then he addresses her. He stops the thought train, which isn't easy to do, and he dignifies a suffering woman by addressing her directly. But it gets better. Because anyone can shout from a distance, hey, you feel better. It's not the same. Notice where he goes. He closes the gap. And in verse, verse 13, it says this. When he laid his hands on her, you see, you have to be close enough to someone to be able to touch them, to lay your hands on them. Immediately, she stood up straight and began praising God. He touched her. And I don't know, honestly, if it's as, if it's as shocking to the Jewish uh, intellect to, to, to see a rabbi touching a person who was somehow thought of as having been a sinner, why else would she be suffering? That's the way they thought of physical ailments at the time. I don't know if it was as scandalous to them as it feels to us as 21st century preachers, but it seems like a really big deal that he would stop and he would touch someone who was obviously unclean in the temple that day. But that's not even the worst scandal to the leader of the synagogue. Watch what happens next, verse 14, and Jesus is known for these. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant, my favorite word in the, in the New Testament, he was indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath. He kept saying to the crowd, and at this point I'm imagining him, Jesus is interacting with this woman and the crowd is listening. He's over here trying to recover his audience from this nonsense going on. And so he says this to the crowd, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on any of those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath day. Think about that. I love these encounters. 
Encounters like this were frequent when Jesus was, when he was engaging the, the thought leaders of his day. But let's not be cliche Christians here, friend. Now hear me. Let's not be cliche Christians and just make some cartoonish chump out of this nameless synagogue leader. You know, he didn't have a name. She didn't have a name. They didn't seem to be necessary to the story. But let's not make a cartoon out of him. The leader says, come back when it makes sense. He could have said, you don't matter, woman. He could have said, you leave right now, but he didn't. Instead, he seems to be saying, there's something more important here than your physical needs right now. Essentially, move over for the maintenance of order. Now, pause a second. How many times has that been the signal in your life? Stop crying or I'll never take you to H-E-B again. Get... How do we learn to be so traumatized emotionally? Because we grow up in a world where we are taught that for the maintenance of order, we must not speak up and show up. Some of you guys parent like champs because when your kid shows up big and large and shadowy, you just go with that until it's done. It's not exactly how we raised our kids. And in the end, I'll bet we end up with great human beings like you will too. But the point is, he's trying to say to the crowd, now is not when. There's plenty of time to do this. It's not right now. Move over for the maintenance of order. You see, the Sabbath is sacred to Jews. And I also had this thought as I read it this week. Maybe it didn't feel like work for Jesus to touch this suffering woman. I mean, that's the prohibition, isn't it? You must not work on the Sabbath. It's only created for a space in which to have delight. But what if it was delightful for Jesus to touch a woman in pain who couldn't even stand upright? Friend, you talk about work. Try navigating your world bent over. Everything is work for a person who cannot see the sun or look people in the eyes. Maybe Jesus knew that his place of delight could touch her place of endless labor. You see, you don't ever get a proper Sabbath if it's labor just to breathe and labor just to walk. Anyway, in response to the leader's rebuke, Jesus takes off the gloves and it gets real. Verse 15, but the Lord answered him and said, now Luke is not making a claim about his Messiahship here. He's simply saying the one in charge that day of this conversation, the master of the ceremonies, as it were, says to him, you hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it to water? Hear the rebuke here. Are you not kinder to your animals that are bound up than we are being to this woman who is bound on the Sabbath? Are you not kinder to your animals, your beasts of burden, who you have tied up behind your house because they're thirsty on the Sabbath? That's work, but is that not something you're willing to do on the Sabbath and yet somehow she doesn't figure in? I would have been speechless had I been one of those leaders in that encounter. You see, Jesus loved to point out the internal contradiction of any non-people, non-human focused religious compliance that he came across. He called it every time what it was, and he saw it often. He calls them hypocrites, and of course the word there just simply means play actors, stage actors, people with one public face and one private place face, people who were, had two different lives. He calls them hypocrites. How dare you take care of your animals in ways you don't afford kindness to this woman? But Jesus did this with everyone, perhaps most infamously with his own disciples. He called them on their business too every time he had a chance. He constantly redirected attention to the human in the picture, specifically if that human was suffering in any way. Jesus goes on in verse 16. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from, the bond, from this bondage on the Sabbath day? Now, I'll be honest, part of me bristles when Jesus, too, seems to attribute this woman's suffering to Satan. I don't know what to make of that for you. This is, this is Luke's memory. Do you remember how the good Rabbi Neil last week defined Satan when Clyde asked about what his thoughts were on Satan? He, refined, he, 
he defined it this way. He said, Satan is anything that gets in our way. You see, they don't see Satan as like, you know, some red-dressed person down at the crossroads teaching you how to play cool blues on your axe. That's a, you know, that's a late, a late invention, I'd say. Satan is anything that gets in your way. And he said this literally. Whatever we hear within ourselves or in the world around us that causes us to make mistakes and live in non-shalom, no peace, that's Satan. That's what they think of as Satan. Jesus attributes her suffering to that. The Jewish concept, anyway, that's how it would work. But by the time Luke writes, of course, the idea of Satan had taken on epic Greek mythological proportions. By the time Luke writes, Satan is now this alter ego that's at war with God, mostly fighting over people and eating everything in sight. But perhaps it doesn't matter because someone was suffering. That was the point to Jesus. Basically, if you follow Jesus' argument here in this engagement, isn't he saying that the Sabbath is actually about freedom? It's not about compliance. It's about freedom. And if this woman can't experience that kind of freedom, does it really upset a good God to interrupt our day of rest so that she might partake as well? Oh, this is the part that steals my heart every time. Friends, he halts institutions to recenter on people, and he does this by pointing out the obvious. She was a Jew just like every other person, probably in the synagogue that day. She was deserving of rest to be in the presence of God. And by pointing out that no one had considered the fact that she was a daughter of Abraham too, he highlights how the very system itself built around the praise and the worship of God had allowed her to go somehow unseen. That's intolerable, friend. She was unacknowledged. That's unacceptable. The system itself began to wound and cause pain. Friends, if you're already bent towards the ground, if your family and friends already assume that you're in this situation because of your own choices, that your condition is because of something wrong that you have done, when someone treats you like you matter, friend, that's everything in the world, isn't it? It's everything in the world. Verse 17, when he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. Luke always tries to put a nice bow on think, little stories like this, on things like this. If anywhere Luke stretches the truth to make his points, it's in these little wrap-up statements after these killer public displays of Jesus' power. All his opponents were, put to shame, opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at the wonderful things being done by Jesus. I don't know, friend. I wonder. But Luke's point remains the same. Jesus recentered the point of the Sabbath on a nameless woman who could now join in the delight of rest. What was the actual healing that day? Was it her spine made straight? Was it a spirit cast out of her? Or suddenly being restored to her status, to her never actually in jeopardy status as a child of Abraham before her peers? Whatever you need to see here in this little story, friend, take what you can. There are miracles aplenty. So why, Jesus? This is an honest question. Jesus wasn't the only compassionate teacher from the first century. Other people performed miracles as well. He wasn't the only one to take on the religious establishment either. And he certainly wasn't the only revolutionary to die because of the way he did it. So what was so unique about this man? Well, among other things, Jesus stands out as an example of someone who centered endlessly on the human pain or the human treatment or human values. It was always the center point. It held the dead epicenter of faith and devotion to Jesus. And that never changed. Now, of course, he was technically in violation of the Sabbath. He and everyone else knew that. But that wasn't the point, was it? 
This woman mattered more than complying with religious laws. You see, in the book of Matthew, Matthew remembers Jesus to have said, the Sabbath was made for the person, not the person for the Sabbath. Hear me now, friend. Jesus was a humanist more than he was a founder of some new religious system. He was a humanist. I'm actually not even sure he intended his thoughts to live outside of Judaism at all. We'll never know now. Jesus' message of love and compassion should be, friend, it could be, it might be someday, it, it possibly can be the center of all systems and institutions. Friends, Jesus didn't run afoul of the Jewish religious authorities because they were evil or dumb or uniquely obtuse or focused on themselves. The truth is, the gospel of Jesus will get inside and pull apart from within all systems of religious thought and organized devotion, including our own, maybe especially our own. No mic to drop. Can't drop this. Why does the gospel of Jesus do this to, to systems? Because systems, you see, are defined by insiders and outsiders. Human-centered values will, be, will, be, will undermine all of those systems, you see, because they're literally constructed of ideas of who's in, who's good, who's bad, who's friendly, who's on the outside. Jesus won't have it. The gospel won't have it. That much has never changed. You see, the wisdom and the way of Jesus is not synonymous with organized Christianity, and it never has been. It's like two circles that sometimes overlap, oh, sometimes ever so slightly, sometimes not at all, but they're not one in the same friend. I wonder if that thought has occurred to you. I think about it endlessly, if I'm honest. You see, we don't have a ton of detail about this woman, do we? All of these stories are somewhat bare bones, if I'm honest. So we have to do a little Christian midrash of our own, as the rabbi tells us that the Jewish people do, if we have any hope of these stories leaping off the page and impacting our lives. We don't know a ton about her or Jesus, if I'm honest, so we do what we must, and we read ourselves into the text. We find ways to find our own voice in these characters, and that's what makes it alive. That's what makes it still speak. And friend, this may not be the case for you, but it is for me. Jesus stopping everything to release a suffering woman from 18 years of physical and emotional prison. This still woos me. It still softens my heart. I still want to believe in a Jesus like that. Because I am her. I'm the bent over one. I'm the imperfect one. I'm the one who just needs to know that love can still see me too in a crowd of much shinier, much more important individuals. I just want to know that I can still be seen too. You see, I am her and so are you. So why Jesus? This isn't the question for one single day for us. It's the question of the journey we are on now. Why Jesus? Because the way he lived still feels so radical, so revolutionary, so reorienting. It still feels like the most real way to be alive. See, Jesus' tender care and touch of physical bodies around him still whispers to me all these years later. And it must have had an impact on Luke as well. Remember, nobody wrote any of this stuff down for 50 or 60 or 70 years after it happened. But you see, the friends of Jesus had these memories that they just couldn't shake. They wouldn't go away. They were lodged in their psyches. And I doubt it was because this woman was important or prominent or wealthy. No, no, I think these stories stuck with them because of Jesus' tenderness for mangled and twisted bodies that wanted so badly to be free. The only body I can think of today that needed so badly to be free is Susie. You see, the Sabbath is made to be free in. It's not made for compliance. It's made for delight. It's made for movement. It's made for life itself. 
but it's made for everyone. No exceptions, no limitations. All this faith disorientation has not led me to abandon my tradition, friend. On the contrary, it has compelled me. It has pulled me even deeper, invited me to go back through it and find the good stuff. And it's there. It's there. We are here because we have believed. The good stuff is there. We just have to know what we're looking for. So why Jesus? Just watch him. Watch what he does. And tell me that your heart doesn't leap at the sound of these stories, the recentering on this human suffering. Tell me that you don't need to hear that gospel today. Jack.